Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 74 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsors. Clio, online practice management for attorneys at goclio.com. And Firm Manager from LexisNexis, a leading provider of information and business solutions. Get your free 30-day trial at firmmanager.com slash LTN. Tom, in our last podcast, we discussed common problems and getting people to use collaboration tools and some of our suggested solutions. In this episode, I thought it was time we took a look at hardware for a change and uh, take a look at the product that seemed to get the most attention at the recent Consumer Electronics Show. Would you let listeners know what to expect in this episode? Absolutely, Dennis. In this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we're going to talk about ultrabooks and whether the hype about them, and there has been a lot of hype, is justified. In our second segment, we're going to revisit the topic of our last episode and follow up on the question of how to best uh, get people to use or adopt collaboration tools. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can begin using the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our first segment, and that's Ultrabooks. A couple of weeks ago, the Consumer Electronics Show was held in uh, Las Vegas, and as usual, uh, there was a big focus, or I guess maybe as as Consumer Electronics Show has started to become over the years, a big focus on consumer technology, personal technology, phones, televisions, cameras, and other types of devices are on display, but but one of the big computing tools that got a lot of attention at CES, it had, it had been announced a couple of months before that, but I think this was sort of the, the unveiling of many of these, was called the Ultrabook. It's what we think are the, is the latest entry in the evolution of the laptop computer. Uh, in, in this podcast, we wanted to discuss whether or not uh, Ultrabooks were tools that lawyers should consider when they're thinking about their computing needs. Dennis, maybe the best place to start is by answering the question, what is an Ultrabook? Can you get us started? Yeah, I, I, there's a couple ways to think about them. I, I, sort of the easiest way to think about them is the non-Apple competitor to the to the MacBook Air. But it, right. but there is sort of a definition that Intel has put together, and and you can think of it as a sub notebook. That sort of, I think the ultra in a way means ultra light, but it also is referring, I think, ultra to sort of better performing. Um, so Intel has a trademark in the name Ultrabook, and they have a, a definition and specification. But um, I think the best way to think about them is that they they are an alternative or a competitor to to the Mac MacBook Air. Um, there's a really great uh, article in the Washington Post by by uh, called uh, Ultrabooks are everywhere at CES, but should you buy one? It's by by uh, Haley Sukayama. And she has a nice summary of uh, of three main distinguishing features of an ultrabook, and the main one is they're very light, very thin. Um, that's the the MacBook Air part of them. Uh, the second thing is that they're 
they're really powerful laptops, and so they're not uh, they're different than tablets or other things because it's using the the Windows OS and not some kind of mobile OS. And and the third thing is that while they're designed to have what what she refers to as sort of a reasonable price point, so around a thousand dollars. But I think when you when you actually uh, put together what you want with solid state drives, it's probably more in the fifteen hundred dollar range. So these are higher end computers. Uh, the key things being super light uh, and well performing, uh, nice screens, and, and I think sort of smaller screens is, uh, too. They tend to be more in the 13, 14 inch range. Times, how's that f- to get us off to a start? I think it's a good start. I think what's interesting about that is that you know Intel isn't known usually as a as a designer of computers. So I think it's interesting that they decided to come out with this design and specifications that they've essentially, I guess, licensed to the the usual suspects. I, I think reading an article, the most of the ultrabooks are being made by uh, companies like Acer and Asus and HP and Lenovo, Toshiba, uh, among others. I think that um, that that. You, you you call them sort of a, a, a competitor or the PC's answer to the MacBook Air. One way that there's one way that they're even similar to that and, and one way that they're different. One way that they're similar is that I think that most of the Ultrabooks come with uh, with either a, a, a full solid state hard drive or with some hybrid so that part of it is a flash drive and part of it is solid state to, to assist in the performance factor. Uh, one area in which I think they're different and it may be be that that these ultrabooks that are out now are not completely different um uh, is that they are designed, or at least the specification is designed to come with a multi-touch screen, which I think would make them more tablet-like. And some of these screens may in the future be either removable or transportable, transformable, so that uh, so that you can actually touch the screen rather than uh, just work with the keyboard. Uh, I, I think what's interesting, you, we, we, I think you mentioned at the beginning of your answer talking about the netbooks and and why do we have? My, one of the questions that I had when I first saw about ultrabooks is, well, what happened? in the netbook and frankly I can answer the question myself because I had a netbook I think that netbooks uh, died a slow quiet death I I think for me I had a netbook for a period of time it met the criteria of being a laptop replacement especially when I was going to go to meetings or places where I didn't need all the power of a regular laptop Um, but once the iPad came along my netbook went on the shelf I never ever used it again I think the iPad's more compact and although it it's more. It's not as powerful as a netbook. It's not anywhere as close to being. I mean, the 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 iPad is not as anywhere close to being as powerful as a regular laptop. Neither is a netbook. Um, but the tablet filled the niche a lot better, and so it it, it went away from me. I, I'm going to be interested to see what the what the ultrabook does in uh, in terms of of. of whether it can can survive better than the netbook did because it is more powerful because it is a little bit more full featured than these netbooks these little small devices were, Dennis, do you think they represent a challenge to Mac and the MacBook Air here? Well, I, you know, I'm not so sure about that because, um, you know, as as I've, you've heard too much from me, my MacBook Air is just my favorite computer ever, and and so I'm not I, I'm sort of reminded of. Last year at Tech Show, we got to see an early version of that RIM playbook, uh, which was, you know, thought to be a competitor to to the iPad. And it had a, what I remember about it is it had a super nice screen, and I just found myself saying, 
I, I don't understand why I wouldn't get an iPad though. And, and so I sort of feel a bit of that way about the, the Ultrabooks compared to the, to the, to the MacBook Air. And if you look at CES and sort of what's been the big story the last few years, I mean, it was 3D TVs and it was last year tablets that were going to be the competitors to the iPad and now ultrabooks and I don't know that that either of the first two really took off and if you look at the sales numbers on the iPads compared to the alternative it's it's mind blowing how much of a, a market share the iPad has so I think that you would you start to say if I'm spending this much money uh, on a computer. And I, and I think that's the real, where it's hard to understand where ultrabooks fit in. Um, because I was, I was just doing a little bit of pricing and I think you easily get to 1500 on these to configure them the way you want. And then you can just buy a laptop these days for about $500, $600 maybe. So I, you, you got to say, how do I justify that premium? With the MacBook Air, that was a difficult hurdle for me. And, you know, I don't like spending the extra money, but I think it, it was it was worth it. So I, I, it's hard for me to see where these fit in, except if you're in, uh, you know, say a firm or a business that's definitely a window shop and they want to get you into these devices. But Tom, you know how firms work and the way the budgets are. If you can get something that seems to do the same thing or it seems like it has a little bit less, you know, it's smaller, it doesn't have as many ports, that sort of thing, the way that an Ultrabook did, did, but it costs two or three times as much, that's a hard sell to get get through the budget uh, process. But I think like the netbook things, which I, I agree with you, Tom, the big problem is they really felt underpowered to most people and they felt cheap. Um, yep. You know, so these, if they if they can get they can feel like the macbook air where it really feels solidly built and 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 just a, a really solid piece of equipment um i think that's potentially a good thing but i suspect the ultrabooks the market is really for for people who travel a lot and who are also don't mind having that smaller screen so there was that move of people toward bigger screens even on laptops now when you're back to a 13 inch screen i'm not sure how many people like that size so travelers it makes sense for you know, in the in the office or as a desktop replacement, I think it's a little harder sell. Well, I think so too. But when I think about whether or not, you know, an Ultrabook makes sense, I don't want to necessarily compare it to laptops uh, or to the laptops that are out there because you're right. I, I can get a great laptop for, I, I, for, for you know, th- I think you're right, three times less uh, than or a third as much as, as, as an Ultrabook will cost. I would prefer to think about it as what what makes people decide to get a MacBook Air? Uh, what made what what you know you've talked about what made you decide to get a MacBook Air. Um, and the MacBook Air is of comparable price. It starts at $9.99, so a thousand bucks. And then there's a it goes all the way up to sixteen hundred and that's even without customization. So it may be that a MacBook Air is even more expensive in the long run than most of these Ultrabooks are. And so I think that that the decision that needs to be made is do you want a good powered laptop without carrying around a heavy device do you want something that's gonna that's gonna get that work done for you i think that that may present an obstacle in firms where you're buying lots and lots of laptops it may not be the laptop that gets out to uh, to all the associates uh at, at bigger firms uh despite the fact that most of those firms have purchasing discounts they're they're likely to still be cost prohibitive but i i see that if if 
people are willing to buy MacBook Airs, I think they'd be also likely to buy an Ultrabook as well. And I think that those who come from a primarily PC background, knowing that this is an option, may very well go for the Ultrabook as long as its reputation, its quality, um, the, the the specs live up to what 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 the Ultrabook comes up with. Dennis, do you do you think what 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 do you think in terms of? Uh, I think I think you're skeptical a little bit on Ultrabooks. What do you think about uh, whether something like the Ultrabook can put an end to your, our, our laptops, our desktops? Well, I you know it's it's, it's a couple things there. Time they're really interesting. I, I mean, I think the iPad. Um, really has uh, plays a part in this decision making process um and uh, then then also sort of where where you're at i i sort of think there's we're now thinking in terms of what we buy as a, a lawyer as a consumer on the personal side versus what we're using at work and i i think we're again back to a point where you know what we have at home is just way better typically than than what a lot of lawyers have have in the office and i and i think of the lawyers and there's still a lot i th- think i saw some stats recently maybe 60 percent still but certainly around half of users are still on windows xp and if you look at the startup time or the sort of the wake up time on my MacBook Air, which is instantaneous versus, you know, when people have to start up a Windows XP, uh, com- you know, laptop or computer in, in the morning or do a reboot where you're talking seven to 10 minutes. I mean, it's, it's a different world out there. So I, yeah. I think if I think if you get the solid state drives and these, you know, the Ultrabooks, um, it, it may be that performance and that that which you're not used to, especially if you used to using the older operating systems that will be will really be the big thing. Um, there are limitations. I mean, it's sort of if you're solid state drive, you have less uh, hard drive space, uh, fewer ports, those sorts of things. Um, and, and I think it also, the, you know, the cloud enters into this. So are you using, doing more things in the cloud, storing things on the cloud because you're not storing them on the device? So it, it makes sense. You really have to think through where an Ultrabook or a MacBook Air fits into things. But I do think we're, um, you know, we're on the verge of that movement away from uh you know, desktops in the in the traditional laptop. In the certainly in the Mac world, there's there's a lot of talk about uh, are we at the end of the regular MacBook, and is is Apple going to move completely to the MacBook Air model? Um, and, and so, so I think there's some thoughts there. You start to think, well, what do I really need a desktop for? Can I just get a laptop and an extra monitor that's big? Um, do it, and that way I can take my computer with me. So I, th- I think that whole sense of tablet, iPhone, all the uh, you know, all these things happening to make us feel more mobile, hit the hit the internet, work any anywhere, anytime, um, is really having having a change. And so I would say I, I could see probably over the next, you know, maybe five years, uh, you really stop you don't see much in the way of desktop computers anymore in offices and you, you see pretty much laptops. I don't know, you go to the ultrabooks and I and I doubt that even in law you're gonna see much you, you know, like a huge Huge percentage of lawyers using uh, Apple products and MacBook Airs, but I could see, uh, you know, for certain practices, especially when we travel a lot, certainly for litigators, that the Ultrabook uh, category could become really significant. 
I, I, you and I have this conversation, I think, at least once a year about whether laptops and desktops are on the way out. And so far, they're still hanging on. And, and frankly, I personally um, prefer to use a desktop computer when I'm at home working because I can configure that desktop to be a lot more powerful than any laptop that I can buy that's out there. And, and you and I have had the discussion about the solid, solid state drive, but the main the, the, the main drawback for me of a solid state drive is the capacity. Right now, they're just not making those drives with the, with the capacity that I like um, to be able to, to use them. And that's one thing that's kept me away from using those and, and of, of using Macs, I think, in general, although there's other reasons for that. I, I think that Ultrabooks can um, compete with the MacBook Air. I think that they, they have that capacity, what we're seeing so far. I think that they have the ability to do it. And, I, and I'm hoping that we see some adoption, like you said, from lawyers who are uh, who are who do a lot of traveling, who maybe not use that as their primary computer because it probably isn't ready to be a primary computer, but but it can be that on the road uh, when they need it type thing. Like you say, the uh, that there might be more as we move to the, the cloud, being able to access those documents from the cloud uh, instead of having to keep them on your lower capacity ultrabook might be something that happens. Um, but but I I also also think it's going to depend on what doc, what new device gets unveiled this year or next year. Uh, the iPad turned everything up, upside down for the netbook. Who knows what will happen within the next year or so and whether the Ultrabook will survive, uh, I guess, the evolution of, of technology. I, I want to close out my end by by saying that uh, a, couple, a couple of tips for if you're looking at a, at a netbook. Um, one of them was something Dennis talked about. Uh, when you think about flash versus solid state, the, the, the low, lower cost ultrabooks are going to be primarily a hybrid of the flash memory and solid state um, but the solid state as you know provides better performance uh, but but at much less capacity um, Dennis also mentioned that uh, ultrabooks come with different kinds of slots and ports um, make sure the one that you choose has the right ports for the jobs that you need to get done some of them don't come with SD uh, slot card slots so if you're a photographer you won't be able to use it for that uh, some don't come with Ethernet ports or VGA ports if you if you do travel for business, you want to make sure that it has both of those because you might find yourself giving presentations or needing to connect to the internet or to a network somewhere. And then finally, make sure that the battery life you get is is a good battery life. Uh, I I think obviously the longer the better. What I've been reading about is that if you uh, if you find something that lasts longer than six hours for battery life, those are your best bets. So those are three tips I've got. Dennis, anything else to uh, to play about for the first segment? You know, I, I think that uh, I agree with you, Tom. I, I think this is one of the things you step back and you think really carefully about um, how you're going to use this, where it fits into how you work. And, and I actually think the price premium uh, is, is going to be a useful thing because uh, my experience with the MacBook Air was like, do I really want to pay that much more? How, how do I justify that? How am I going to use this? And how does that make sense? And so with that price point, I think that will help focus people. I think also, uh, in an interesting way, the screen size will have a lot, uh, you know, play a big role in, dis in decision. I like a smaller screen size, 13 inches, great for me. I consider 11 inch, but I know a lot of people are much more comfortable with, with bigger screens. Um, so so I, I look at those things. I, I don't know that it's going to 
to be a big development over the course of this year. Um, but but I think that there is a, a bit of a trend that we'll see uh, sort of two categories of laptop. One will be a total commodity, low-end one, which will sort of be the regular laptop becoming what we thought the netbook was going to be in this ultrabook, being, being like a just a higher level branding point that's, you know, as thin, nice, a bit more expensive um, and useful to certain people in, in, in certain ways. So I don't see a lot of uptake maybe in 2012, but probably over the next two years, we'll, we'll see that sort of breakout in, in the hardware world. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from our sponsors, Clio and Firm Manager by LexisNexis. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. If you like listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, you might also like the podcast, Law Technology Now on LegalTalkNetwork.com. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com ltn. That's firmmanager.com slash LTN. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial playing in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. And welcome back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. In this segment, we revisit our topic from the last episode, barriers to the adoption of collaboration tools. We got a comment from a listener about uh, ways of, and I'll use the air quotes here, forcing people to use collaboration tools. Tom, we focused a lot on the, the carrot approach as opposed to the stick approach in our last podcast. Do you think there are ways to subtly or maybe unsubtly push people into using collaboration tools that might work for people? 
You know, I think that the reason that we focused on carrots is because traditionally sticks don't work very well when it comes to introducing new technology tools. And I'm, I, I hate to do this, but I'm going to go back to the subject I think I beat to death in the last podcast, and that's change management. If you're not managing the transition to the new tool in the right way, you are not going to have widespread acceptance or adoption. And by doing that, and change management means putting out the message, here's why we're doing this, here's why it's a good thing, and, and, and then training people on exactly how to use it so that, one, they feel excited about using it, and two, they know how to use it, um, they're more likely to use it. Forcing people to use something is not the right way to have adoption. I know a lot of companies... And a lot of firms just say, hey, by the way, we have a new uh, tool to do this and, uh, and, and there's training. But uh, if you don't show up at the training, that's OK. I know a lot of partners don't like to go to training for things because they're busy. Um, a lot of, most of the lawyers don't want to go to training for things. Um, it's, 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 hard, it's hard to do that uh, unless you roll it out appropriately. Now, I think if the message were something like, we're rolling out this new technology and starting on this date, everybody's going to be using it to do whatever the tool is supposed to do. And But don't worry because we're going to show you how it works and why it's going to make you more productive in how you work with other people. And, and if you can show a person how it will benefit them personally, you have a much better chance, I think, at adoption. And I think that's why the right message and training are so important. Dennis, what do you think? Well, I, I actually th- thought a bit about whether you can force people. And, and- and I went back to, uh, I was at a firm where, and, and this happened to a lot of law firms, where people entered their time once a week. And people realized there's a big need to do that on a daily basis. And, oh, there was such uproar over that and, you know, how it couldn't be done and what a burden that would put on lawyers. And the approach that we took, and this one for partners uh, as well, was if you didn't get your time in, by the next, the end of the next day, you got a twenty dollar fine. Okay, so okay, lawyers make a lot of money, so that seems like it should be no big deal. But you would not believe the people. In fact, some of the best compensated people in the firm who would f- hurry, hurry, hurry at the last minute to get that time in, and then you you built that change. So I don't know when the collaboration tools that that simple little fine thing or circulating a list of of people who don't do things in the right way. Um, can work, but but I've seen it work in places that, that people didn't expect it to. I think the other thing you might do that's, that's sort of on the stick side is that you say, here's the new tool, and by the way, here are these alternatives that you might have been using, now they're going away, and you know you might have a week, you might have two weeks or something, but you start to take those things away. Um, so I, I think there is, potentially you can do some things in, uh, you know, I agree with you, Tom, it's all part of a, a bigger, ch- you know, uh, change management management uh, approach where you're saying, okay, there's training, uh, you're giving people a roadmap how to do this. But then I think you have to say, let's, you know, here's the switch is being pulled and change happens now. And if, if, if you're not there, you're left behind. The other example I would use is that um, to sort of the stick approach is everybody has this thing where you have people who don't show up to meetings on time and the only way to get them to come on time is you just start the meetings on time and you don't brief them as to what they missed and they gradually learn uh, that they need to show up on time. And so it, it could be that 
you know, you just don't give people any alternatives to the collaboration tools and you say you show up or you miss out. And uh, maybe it does take a bit of a harsher approach with some places, uh, uh, but you need to read your people a little bit. It's time, like I always say, there's, you know, it's sort of more cultural than it is technology. But I think in some places that you could actually, uh, you know, kind of crack the whip a little bit on people, but, you know, in, in uh, fairly straightforward ways. You know, I am... Um that remind what you said about your firm reminded me of how we handled timesheets at my old firm, which was uh, if if you didn't get your time in um, on time within a certain after a certain number of times, then we weren't charging money as a penalty, but you would have your direct deposit privileges revoked. So you no longer had your paycheck directly deposited. You'd get a check and you'd have to go deposit it yourself. And I think by and large, that's very successful. That's a successful uh, uh, tactic and people have, have taken to that. We do have one attorney in, uh, that, that uh, I learned about. I heard from, from people there saying that uh, once his direct deposit privileges were taken away, then he just stopped entering time altogether. So he went in the exact opposite direction and, uh, and, and is doing nothing. And so I think that there will always be people that will be difficult to force. Um, I think, frankly, rather than to, to have penalties or things, although the, the things you mentioned, I think, could be effective, I, I like the, the subtle way of, of pushing people into using technology, and that's by creating a group of champions. The people who are already enthusiastic about using it go out into your firm or your company, and they'll, they'll tell other people about how they're using it. I, I remember in my old law firm that I had people come to me and say, I see that so-and-so has been upgraded to this new technology. Why don't I get to have it yet? What, when do I get it? Uh, and, and, and seeing that other people are, are being treated in a special way or that they're getting to use something that somebody else isn't actually uh, creates a level of competition, saying, I want to be just as, as equal as they are. And, and I think that that drives a little bit more of the adoption. By, by creating those champions, you slowly build that excitement over the new technology. And I think at the end, Nobody wants to be left out. So that's one way of doing it. Yeah, Tom, I, I mean, I, I would just add that people also need to think about, like, why are you letting one or two people uh, cause the rest of the people to incur extra costs and, and have more difficulties just because they have some personal thing that they can't really explain, uh, you know, that they don't want to do this? I mean, sometimes you got to say, hey, look, this is a firm, this is an organization, this benefits everybody, you you need to, to, to get on board. Um, but time, it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Take it away. Um, I'm, my, my tip this week, my, my parting shot is about the, uh, the tool LastPass. And I probably mentioned this a bunch on the, on the podcast before. LastPass is the tool that I use to manage all of my passwords. I think it's fantastic because it's everywhere. Um, I've, I've got it attached to all of my browsers on all of my computers so that when I visit websites that I've already been to, it automatically fills in and logs in to those websites uh, immediately. Uh, when I visit a website for the first time and sign up. I can fill in forms easily. I can uh, then create logins and very, very secure passwords that I can uh, uh, then use the next time I visit that website. What they've introduced as part of their software lately is something that they call the LastPass Security Challenge. So if you've already got LastPass, go in and uh, go into the LastPass menu and then Tools and then select LastPass Security Challenge. It takes you to a website uh, at LastPass and where they analyze all 
of your passwords and they tell you what they think about them, how many duplicates there are, how weak they are, what uh, what percentage of them are, are good passwords versus bad passwords. And then they, they actually list out the ones that they say are weak and, and what the strength level of each password is. And I was, you know, I talk about security and I think that I'm pretty good at it. And I am embarrassed to admit right here on this podcast that my, uh, my security level was about 22% when I did the first pass. My passwords were way too many duplicates and way too easy. Even though I use lots of different passwords, they were a lot easier than uh, than I thought that they were. And so with LastPass help, I'm going through the, the, the uh, sites and I'm upgrading those passwords and I'm, I'm fixing things and, and making them more unique. And uh, I've got a ways to go, but I'm up to 35% and I keep on trying. So it's a, it's a great tool to let you see how your password management is uh, the LastPass security challenge absolutely free. Dennis. Tom, I have this uh, really great thought-provoking article in the uh, Harvard Business Review f- from Bill Taylor. It's called, Are You Learning As Fast As The World Is Changing? And <laughs> if this could be the one t- the one thing I focus on in 2012, I, I think that would be just absolutely great for me and, and for anyone else. Bill Taylor uh, used to be, uh, or may still be at, at Fast Company, uh, but he wrote this book called last year called Practically Radical, which is probably the book I read last year I would most recommend um, about innovation and things like that, but in a very practical way. But in this article, he jumps to the question of, are you learning as fast as the world is changing? And, and Tom and I, you and I have talked about this is like, how do we stay up with things? How do we learn new things? And um, you know, he has three sort of learnings, um, and, and which I think are really thought-provoking starting points for you. And he says, first, the best learners have the widest field of vision. So you can't get too, you know, too narrow in what you're looking at, and you want to look in broader areas. And so I always, I always try to do that. Uh, second, um, the best source of new ideas in your field can be old ideas from unrelated fields. And so this is a notion that I think lawyers tend to shy away from and say, can we look at what people are doing in other fields that already have worked that maybe have some application or with some modifications in the in the field of law? And then lastly, he says that, and this is a big challenge for me always, is that, that uh, successful learners work hard not to be loners. So there's this collaboration element. And as he, he says at the end of the, the article, nobody alone learns as quickly as everybody together. And so um, I, I sort of I think I'm going to take this article as sort of my challenge for 2012 and and say, you know, am I really learning as fast as the world is changing? And so I really recommend this article to people just a page and a half in a printout. Um, but I think it will stick with you much longer than it takes for you to read it. I'm going to go start reading as soon as the podcast is over. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our uh, show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast at the Legal Talk Network site or in iTunes. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or at tkmreport on Twitter. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network, the premier online legal media network. Make it ultra important to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.